Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains references to suicide. As well, there are intimate conversations around infant loss. If this content affects you and you're in need of support, help is available. Visit sands.org.au. That's sans, S-A-N-D-S, and dial their 24-7 support line on 1300 308 307 or dial the number for Lifeline, which is 13 11 14. Please listen with care. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week on Crime Insiders Detectives, New Zealand's most high-profile hostage negotiator. He's covered in the pres- out of the prisoner's blood. He's almost white around his mouth in the froth. He's just absolutely unstable. Lance Burdett joined the force late. He spent 20 years working as a builder from when he was 15 all the way through to when he joined the police at 35. This dynamic is fascinating. So many of the coppers we talked to joined when they were 19 or 20, making police their whole life. But Lance is a little different. He took on the job not necessarily because it was ingrained in him to do so, but because he wanted a change, some excitement in his life. That excitement would eventually turn to fear and anxiety as the terrifying reality of life as a police officer sunk in. So I walked down the hallway and the closer I got, the more I could feel my emotions building up. And I walked in and here's mum holding a baby. And the mum looked at me and she just said, why? To start, we're moving into a case that epitomises what it means to be a hostage negotiator. There's a situation at Paramaramo Prison in Auckland. A high-profile prisoner has taken an elderly prisoner hostage and barricaded himself into a room with a list of demands. At that stage, I was what they called the national advisor for crisis negotiators. I led the team. Got a call saying that uh, George Baker, who I'd known about um, and, and his bit of his antics, it's quite a surreal experience when you're going through a prison. I was unescorted because I'd been there a few times and I'd trained there. So as I'm walking through the prison, the doors are opening and closing behind me because it's all on video and it was just by myself and and the noise and the smell and the, you know, if, if you've ever been in a prison, you just know it's just not a good place. You know, there's this, I mean, you can smell the hormones. It's just, it's a horrible place to be. So anyway, I got taken, into the, I went into this uh, this secure unit and I was about to step forward to do the negotiating and I looked around the corner and when I looked around, I saw George and he'd been working out 
He's over six foot tall, muscular, just ranting. He's up and down pacing. I could see further down and behind the cell. So there was an exercise area within the prison and there was bars. What he'd done is he'd barricaded himself into this area. He'd jammed the lock with some metal parts that had broken off so they couldn't open the door and he'd put lots and lots of like rubbish and mattresses and gym equipment against the door so they couldn't get through but you could still see and further down away from him was this other prisoner who was hogtied basically to a chair and he had blood coming out of his head and down out of his neck and George was ranting and raving and and, and trying to put the shank on his guy's throat and say look I'm going to kill him I'm going to kill him uh, and I just pulled back and went, oh, because uh, the thing about police officers going into prisons is they can tell you're a cop. That You know, it stands out and you always, as I'm walking through, you can hear the oink oinks and the, you know, all that sort of stuff going on. And I smell shit and you can just, uh, you just, can't, it's unimaginable. And this unit was a secure unit within a secure unit. It was the maximum security part. So they called it B block then. It has an actual name now. And they were all really bad, some insane criminals within that part. So he wanted to get transferred to another part. That was the idea of it. He wanted to go to the less secure wing because he didn't believe he needed this help. And so what I found out very quickly was, um, one, I'm not going to be able to do this. But two, what's the reason why? And it turns out that this was the anniversary of him killing Liam Ashley. And so every anniversary, he says that Liam comes back to him and talks to him. Well, that's called guilt, regret, remorse, etc. Uh, it's the natural thing the brain does. And he, he does things. He goes a little bit AWOL and a little bit crazy in his head. And I, my first thought was I looked at the one of the senior prison officers and I, I said, so he does this every year, does he? And in other words, really? Like you can't put something in place the day before? I said, look, I can't go forward. This guy, he will, he will, he'll tell I'm a cop and it's going to make it worse. It's a risk. So there was somebody talking with him, a prison manager. I said, bring him back. I'll brief him and I'll be the gopher and I'll be standing nearby. I'll listen. I'm getting the coffees. Um, I just loosened off my shirt and tried to ruffle up whatever hair I had left and not to look so much like a cop. And he said, let's do it. And that's what we did. We ran the negotiation like that of... How are we going to get this guy out? But just get him to talk about, he, he kept mentioning 9.30. It'll all happen at 9.30. And it turns out 9.30 was the, sorry, 7.30. That was the time that he uh, got charged. He got charged with murder at 7.30 that night. So we're waiting, for, wondering what that time was. And so in between times, I had to go back to the command centre and talk with the tactical commander and say, look, this is what's going on. He wants to go from this block to the other block. And so the prison staff said, well, tell him he's going there, get the door open, and we'll we'll take over. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but crisis negotiators, we've got one rule, and that is never lie. So no, I'm not doing that, but I can get your team to do it if you want. And so that was the ploy, was to say to him, we're going to let you go to this part of the prison you want to go to. But to get to that stage was hellish because you're talking about a person who is mentally unstable at the best of times and at the worst of times 
there's just absolutely no rational thought whatsoever. This guy is has his shirt off. He's sweating. He's covered in the pris- other prisoner's blood. Uh, he's um, almost white around his mouth in the froth. He's just absolutely unstable. I'd like to, you know, mad, but he's unstable. And so it took a bit of time, but eventually they managed to. Now, there's teams get deployed inside a prison, a police team and a prison team. And the prison team is trained. They're called the Advanced Calm and Restraint Teams, and they have shields. There's five in a, in a squad, two with shields, and then three follow. What they do is they basically will smash the person either against the prisoner against the wall or on the floor to contain them. They do it as quickly as possible so no one gets hurt, and that's what the idea. The second team is the Police Special Tactics Group, the STG, who are highly skilled. A couple of them had tasers, a couple had beanbags, and a couple had firearms for obvious reasons. So the idea was that we would say, yes, we're going to get you out of here. And my job was then to be the signal. Thumb up, it'll be the prison team. Uh, Thumb down, it'll be the police team who gets deployed. Uh, Luckily enough, George complied, started pulling all the barriers down. And so I gave the prison team thumbs up. And so when the door was finally open, I just gave them the nod and they came around and took George out like uh, it was so professional. It would have, it was no harm to anyone. Took him down um, on the ground, handcuffed him and took him away. It was, uh, but the screaming will never leave me. It was the screaming of a child who had been trapped in a trap. Uh, It was horrific. So he'd been... Um, you know, obviously pushed face down onto the onto the ground and uh, handcuffed and then uh, one person takes them away. But the whole prison went dead quiet. It was surreal. Look, it's a, it was a pleasure and honour to be part of that negotiation and to work with those teams. They are highly disciplined, highly skilled, highly professional. And then following that, uh, the ending of that, I thought this has got to be wrong. This is wrong again, another thing. So my second, I guess, opportunity I had was I worked for the next maybe five years of getting prison negotiators trained. You know, it makes such sense, doesn't it, Lance, as these things often do when you look back with the benefit of hindsight, to have a prison guard who's on site, who has a relationship not only with the prison, but with the prisoners, as opposed to bringing someone like yourself in uh, as a police officer, and, and we all know as police officers walking into a prison, let alone a maximum security you're up against the barrier straight away, aren't you? There's absolutely no doubt about it. And if you can remove that, you know, negotiations are all about that, negotiating. By doing that and providing them with those skills, you've removed one of the biggest barriers that I think that you would come up against in a situation like that. Yeah, it's, uh, it is. It's um, And you know what? There has to be a leverage by somebody, and the leverage is the prison officer. So that prisoner will know from near, their forward that that officer is going to be around the prison as their friend, or as their, this is what's going to happen next time. So police don't have that rapport for obvious reasons. And so uh, it was, look, there was about five or six incidents in previous years where it just didn't go well. And it, it, of course, it's not going to go well. So you've got to have that little bit of leverage and they do that by, by being, and, and it's contained within the unit. And I'm so proud to say that prison negotiation teams are now a big part of the prison service in New Zealand.
I'm going to go back, Lance, to around 1999. You'd have been in the job for about seven years, still probably in uniform, I'd imagine, at that stage. Got a call to a home, described on your arrival as um, quite confrontingly wailing and screaming coming from the bedroom of the house. Lance, can you take us through through that job? It's one that I believe sort of um, stayed with you for some time. Yeah, and I, I didn't know you were going to bring this one up, um, so I apologise if it if it catches me uh, on guard. It's uh, uh, when I wrote the chapter in the book. Um, to be honest, it took days to do. Um, I walked up towards the house and I could hear wailing coming from inside. So I walked in and the the two young coppers that were in there looked at me and I could see in their faces that things weren't good. So I walked uh, down the hallway and the closer I got, the more um, I could feel my emotions building up. And I walked in and here's mum holding a a baby, uh, a dead baby in in her arms and the grandmother basically prostrating on the floor, wailing and screaming. And the mum looked at me um, and she just said, why? And I, uh, mate, I'm, I'm welling up now. I didn't know you were going to get me with this one. Oh, uh, sorry, it was mate. so, no, no, it's all good. It's uh, just uh, uh, having had kids myself, um, you always can't, you, you, so when we're in any situation, we're always reflecting on ourselves. And I just had no words. Um, and I, I mean, it, it sounds naff, but I just said, I'm so sorry. And then I came back out and I said, look, I'm going to leave you here. Um, we'll be back. Take your time. And so I left her uh, and said, you know, at some stage I'll be back in the room and went and did some other things. And I think that was more of a break for me, to be honest, but also to give uh, her a chance. So I went out and made sure that everything was all right. Just so those that don't know, a sergeant must always turn up at a baby's death. And that is just to make sure there's no suspicious circumstances and to, and to give that bit of reassurance to the family. And so I turned up and I could hear this. And at that point, when you have a, a death of anyone, on behalf of the coroner, you have to ask these confronting questions, questions that are just, you know, do you smoke near the baby? Do you consume alcohol? Do you take, uh, you know, drugs or have you smoked cannabis? And you have to go in the room, you have to ask the parents about, Um, Did you leave the heater on at night? And just things that the pathologist needs. But, I mean, mate, for me that just did my head and it was like, so when I looked around at the questions on this list, I was like, this is just too brutal. How can you ask parents these dumb questions, which they are dumb, to be honest, because you can take photos. So my detective skills, I thought, well, there's got to be a better way. So I, I sat there and, and developed a new form, and I worked with uh, who was then the deputy coroner on what. So I spoke with pathologists. Um, I spoke with all of the um, people who work for the coroner. Um, we have uh, inquest officers in every police station. Uh, asked them, and we ran this thing. And it took two to three years to come up with this form, simple form, that's less brutal, less confrontational. You know, if they, you'll smell if they smoke cigarettes near the baby. You can smell it in the house. Um, take photographs of the room. You know, where was the heater placed? How close was it? You don't have to ask. Just take photos. You, you're a copper. You know, just <laughs> that's what you're there to do. And so we, it took a while, but we've um, got this form, and it was, I would say, my greatest success. You know, confronting parents with just questions that the pathologist would like, uh, well, that's not a police officer's job. We're there to help and support because, you know, ultimately we have to take 
that child away. And there has to be an autopsy completed. And, mate, that is the worst thing you'd ever get asked to do. You know, Lance, you, as you're telling the story, and thank you so much for sharing it with us, because it's one of the aspects of policing which I think in some ways goes under the radar, Lance. It's certainly not mentioned in any of the recruitment glossy brochures and things such as that. As a sergeant at the time, you mentioned too, the, the two young constables on site, on scene, you know, prior to your arriving. And I, as you're telling that story, I remember with absolute clarity the first death of a little one, a cot death is often the term that's used. I remember the house, I remember what day it was, and it's it's one of those cases, I mean, to use the policing parlance, I think it's, they used to, back in the day, used to call it a 1S, didn't they, a sudden death that you'd arrive that's at. It. As a young police officer, these are very, very confronting issues from attending a scene where perhaps an elderly person hasn't been seen for a few days and you arrive and after a little bit of time in the job and those scenarios, you you can see the signs of, of what awaits you in the door. You know, sort of a few newspapers um, haven't been collected or uh, back in the day of, I'm showing my age now, Lance, uh, bottles of milk that haven't <laughs> have been delivered and not taken in. And you go into the house and uh, I won't be too gruesome here, but you, you know as soon as you break a window to come mm. in that there's something not good. And with an elderly person, it's a tragic, awful, terrible thing. Um, but it's one of those things that you try and do the job to the best of your ability to help the family. And, and, and you hope that with an elderly person passing, you can get a certificate as to cause of death, which for those listening is means that the um, the deceased doesn't have to go through a, a, a post-mortem. It doesn't become a coroner's case. With the little ones, with the wee ones that pass, not only is there that awful, terrible experience of you arriving and somehow having to go through that question with the with the mum and dad, but it's it's taking that little one away and and trying to explain to the parents why the little one has to go with the police. It's just um, goodness me. Even <laughs> I'm a dad myself, um, Lance. Even talking about that now, it's. Um, yeah, these are the worst jobs you can attend, mate. Yeah, it's um, it's like you say, it's not on the brochures. You know, they show the armed defenders squad and and dog handler and this, helicopters. This is what you can do if you want to be a copper. Well, well, let me tell you, if you want to be a copper, make sure that you are good at talking with people first, and make sure that you've got your heart in, in the right place. Because uh, one of the things that I, I I learned then and learned now is the more empathetic you can be towards people, the more protected you are from, from falling down a hole yourself. Because if you put that armour up to protect you, uh, you will fall over without a doubt. And I, I would manage to convince, and it's not supposed to happen because uh, it, it, the baby is classed as evidence now. That just does my head in, but you're not allowed to have anyone near the, the baby when uh, it's been transported, the baby's been transported to the mortuary. And so I asked and convinced the driver of the transporting if the mum could and hold the baby and you can see where the baby is. Is that okay? And he said, yeah. And I said, I'll be, um, in fact, we've got the, the young coppers to follow along as well just for that chain of custody. I mean, it sounds terrible, doesn't it? But this is the way they talk about uh, bodies, the chain of custody. And it's just, they, they use these words to protect themselves, but uh, you know, it's it's the person, right? They're still a person. They're still a, uh, and so that was, um, yeah. Look, out of that, getting that document done, I, and I, I mean, you'd never, you can never tell the impact, the positive impact something like that has made. 
but just getting that one single email from a pathologist who said uh, we still use it as the it is all we need to know it is brilliant and it's done in a way that the parents don't feel blamed because you know if you start asking questions do you smoke do you drink do you um, when did you put what are you doing you're basically saying well you did a few things wrong here uh, well hang on they've been punished enough yeah uh, we know that it's that these things happen um, yeah it's it's a it's a pulls at the heartstrings for sure and Lance um I think in an interview that I listened into that you did a, a little while back, you said that this case, and this is 1999, seven years in the police, uh, a uniform sergeant at that stage, I think you labelled this as almost a trigger for for your own struggles, um, sort of fell into some depression and, and struggling sort of with the job and what it entailed. Is Did I get that right, Lance? Please pull me up if I've misconstrued that. No, no. Look, uh, it's a phenomenon that happens. Um, so you, we've all heard about the seven-year itch and the seven-year this and the seven-year that, well, all coppers will fall over between seven and ten years. So usually around seven years they they fall over in some way and there's a number of triggers. Now, 99 was my worst and best year. So it's, it triggered me and it was just, there was that's the start of the catalyst of my downfall. And then at the end of 99, I was done. I was in a hole. So this was a massive year. All to do with policing, believe it or not, not my, so much in my personal life because that was going really well. Uh, it was just that this whole, that that seven-year period just absolutely was the catalyst of me, but this was the first one. But I, I've never, ever um, been, and, and you know, it's quite a surprise <laughs> for you to, and, and good on you, thanks for bringing it up again because it's helpful every time you bring something up. You have to talk about it and you have to get it out because each time you talk about it, uh, a little bit more emotion comes out and that reduces the mark in your memory. Lance, 1999 was, it sort of falls around about midway through your policing career, uh, perhaps not quite, but there or thereabouts. And it's also a time that you became crisis negotiator for the police. And, and there's a rather confronting irony there that as you've said yourself, 1991 was both the, the best and the worst. It was um, where you found yourself dealing with depression and, and possibly, you've said, you know, suicidal thoughts and things along these lines. And as part of your job in that negotiating role, you're often talking people down who are contemplating, attempting, about to commit suicide, take their own lives. And you felt yourself that you had a full understanding of, of where they were and how they were thinking. And you were using your own experience, how you were feeling to relate to them. And uh, the quote that jumped off at me was, um, it's okay, I've been in some dark places too and you can get through this. And very confronting to hear a police negotiator trying to help somebody from taking their lives, who they themselves is perhaps only a step or two away from that place personally. Look, I think it's, really did help me. I've got a 100% success rate with suicide interventions and I, I think it's, I've been very fortunate, but I think going through my own battles and, and having suicidal ideation, so an ideation is a thought of taking your own life, so it's basically flight. So the brain has fought, you know, you've fought well, you've done well up till now, uh, and then all of a sudden you just have these the flashing thoughts of here's a way out, right? So it's it's flight. The brain has said, Here's, here's an option. Our brain's dumb, Brent, it really is. And it has this whole problem-solving tool. Um, and, and we go back through our memory. 
So if, if you've got something on your mind, anything on your mind, and I just use a simple example, you're leaving home, bit of a hurry, got a partner at home, see you, I'm off, you shout out, and you hear back, yeah, whatever, and you think to yourself, I'll deal with this when I get home, and off you go to work. Then you start having these thoughts come to your mind, you know, so you've been late home quite a bit lately, you've been, um, yeah, a bit snappy lately. You remember that argument you had a year ago? Do you remember when you first met, you're a bit of a dick? you remember when you were seven? And you're like, what the heck is going on? So we have this auto problem solver. It's ourself talking to ourself about ourself. And this is the key to suicide and crisis intervention. You've got to get it out of your head. If you don't get it out of your head, this auto tool comes in. And it's dumb. It really is dumb. And 80% of our memories are bad things. So, you know, all of a sudden you don't have one thing on your mind. You now have five or six. And that's what happens when you go into the depression. You have all of these flashbacks of, it's just a simple problem-solving tool the brain has. And so you must do something about it. Get it out of your head, talk about it. The next thing you must do is read some information, and the third thing is write yourself a plan. You've got to take control of your own thoughts. If you don't, you end up down what's called the worry spiral, uh, right? And so that's all it is, really. It's cool. It's actually catastrophizing. Being in that situation and realising I started to learn, so one of the things when I went did end up going for help, because I had to, I had a suicidal ideation, I was, I was at, um, in the police station doing some photocopying, um, and photocopies are just, you know, that stresses you out anyway. And uh, I looked out the window and I had this thought, it's not high enough, go higher. And I'd just become a crisis negotiator at that point, and I realised, oh dude, you're bad, you got to go for help. So I did, I went to a padre, now Police are good. They have these padres that are reverends or ministers that come along and just hang around the police station to, you know, give you some spiritual support. So I went down and spoke with him, and he said, "Come on, let's let's do some prayer and stuff." And uh, that was really helpful. But it started me on my journey. Went to see a psychiatrist, learned more about what ideations were, and then just started reading. And do you know what? If I hadn't been for that moment, and if I hadn't have been lucky enough to have been down there and then had that person to go to, who knows, but it started me on a journey that I have just never stopped doing and, you know, the books, the, the workshops we run, all of that stuff has just come from the fact that I was in my lowest place, but, you know, it gave me the ability to uh, be able to, I guess, be a part of that person on their journey and say, look, I've been there. I can connect with them in a way that, that others can't uh, because uh, they can see it in my face. Look, like, I've been there. It's shit. It's shit, isn't it? And they just look up and they nod their head and they go, right, so what's kept you going? What's kept you going? What's your hook? And when you talk about that, all of a sudden they're in their prefrontal cortex. They're in a completely different part of their brain because they're starting to think about their joy. And, uh, and as they talk about the joy, it's reciprocal. I get joy seeing them with joy, right? So we help each other on our journey. Did you find, Lance, and, and there's an interesting point, you know, as you, where you were in that headspace at that time and the things that you were dealing with, did you walk away from some of those negotiations almost feeling like you've um, given yourself some therapy or treatment whilst trying to treat the other person. Is that, is that sort of, is yeah, that what you're saying? Is, yeah, yeah, that's it, mate. Look, the, the first one is the, yeah, the first one is the euphoric effect of, um, uh, and I, I remember more than once I've got stopped by a, 
by a, a copper on the way from a, back from a negotiation because you're just adrenaline's going and the joy, the endorphins are flowing. You know, you've got that whole, look, I've just saved somebody. But then uh, with you just saying that, I, I've got a big smile on my face. It's, that's exactly it. It's that whole, I've shared part of my story. And the more I did that, the easier it was. And so becoming an instructor at the police college with suicide intervention and, and now postvention being a big part of my work then and still is now, it, it just made such a difference to me as it is to them. And you've got that connection forever. I, look, I've never met anyone that I've had an intervention with and I just know that I've done my part and hopefully they're flourishing like I am. Lance, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today from the studio there in New Zealand. I want to thank you for your honesty, for your candor. Lance, it's just been an absolute pleasure to meet you and to hear your story and and listen to some of your wisdom. And um, I just thank you so very much for your service. Ah, you're very welcome, Brent. Look forward to catching up again. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.